I myself am a guild leader, which is like a guild leader in a wor world of Warcraft, but I'm directing people in real life who are playing games in the virtual world that are getting virtual points that are converting, getting converted to real money, which is affecting people at a large scale in the world. So honestly, Web3 has actually spoiled playing games for me because now I'm playing a giant video game with huge real-world consequences, raising real money for it, being able to affect lives in dozens of countries around the world. It's, it just doesn't compare to just playing a video game for points. All right, what's going on, everybody? This is The Other Life Podcast. I am Justin Murphy. And this week, we are talking with Gabby Dizon. Gabby is the founder of this totally wild company called Yield Guild Games. This is a company that's built on top of something that's already crazy enough in its own right. It's built on top of the NFT slash crypto game Axie Infinity. Axie Infinity is this massive game, the economy of which is already into the billions of dollars. I think it's I think the 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 token is worth a market cap of something like 3.8 billion. And this game, Axie Infinity, is a full-time job for people in some less developed countries. So Gabby, for instance, is from the Philippines. He's the founder of this company that provides resources to gamers in Axie Infinity to enable them to play better, basically. And they charge interest on what they lend out to gamers. That's the, the business model, basically, of Yield Guild Games. They call them scholarships. They give scholarships to gamers to support them. And then they build these guilds of gamers that they basically yield guild games owns shares in, in a way it's, it's a somewhat complicated and, but it's absolutely fascinating. And we have Gabby on to basically talk all about what's going on in this world of the metaverse of these totally new economies. Basically they're, they're whole economies, the size of small countries and people like Gabby are already building massive companies on top of these economies. So Gabby is also an art collector. He has some really interesting insights for us on, you know, how he evaluates NFTs and how we should maybe think about, you know, creating in this new economy. So it was a wider, wider ranging discussion with someone who's, uh, you know, really at the, at the very forefront of, of gaming and the metaverse, uh, especially when it comes to crypto. So this was very fascinating, very on brand for the podcast. I think you're all going to find a lot of really interesting uh, tidbits here. So that's all for now. I should get out of the way. We'll get on to the show. Just a very quick reminder, this podcast is sponsored by IndieThinkers.org. IndieThinkers is the only private membership community for independent intellectuals, people who are working on different types of creative projects, whether it be writing or podcasting or videos or whatever the case might be, but people doing kind of long-term sophisticated work outside of institutions and on the internet instead. So if that describes you, go ahead and check out IndieThinkers.org. You can request an invitation if you think that the services and the support structures that they provide could help you. All right. So that's IndieThinkers.org. That's all I got for now. Let's get on to the show. Thanks for listening as always. All right. So Gabby, I think a lot of people in my audience have probably heard some of the news headlines around people in the Philippines are now making money playing video games as their as their full-time job. And of course, you're one of the the big players in this in this world that's making this possible. So I want you to take us back to square one. Tell us about what you first noticed when you first realized, whoa, there's something really important going on here. How did you first notice that? 
And what was the insight or the idea that, that, that you saw? How did you think about it? In what terms when you first uh, kind of realized there was a massive opportunity here? So this was actually around this time last year. And I had been playing Axie Infinity and other blockchain games since, uh, I would say, like mid to late 2018. And it had before then been kind of, you know, a niche game wherein people who were into crypto would buy NFTs and play these games and use them to earn more crypto. And, you know, like most of the players then were probably on the kind of upper middle uh, to wealthy, like mostly America um, in Europe, a little bit of Asia as well. Um, it wasn't a game for everyday people, I would say. And Axie made this change, which kind of pioneered what we call now the play to earn movement, in which you used your NFT assets um, inside the game, and then you would earn a, uh, a reward for it. So the reward is called SLP, Smooth Love Potion. And what's unique about this is that you could sync the SLP points that you have inside the game to your crypto wallet, which means now it becomes a token that you could trade back to Ether or eventually to uh, to fiat, right? Um, offload into cash in your, in your own country. And so last year this time was the kind of the early lockdown um, in the Philippines. And... I started seeing people from my country come in and buy axes because they realized that they could play this game, earn SLP, sell it for Philippine pesos, and they would actually make a multiple of the of the income that they were making like before they uh, they were locked down. So this was a really eye-opening moment, and yeah, it was such a special time last year when things just started picking up for the first time. Okay, great. And so your company, Yield Guild Games, basically provides resources for gamers who are pursuing essentially maybe careers in, in this world of, of kind of NFT gaming. So we're going to unpack that in a minute. We're going to learn about what your what your company is, how it operates, and how you see the longer term play there. But before we do that, just to kind of warm the audience into it and kind of cover some of the some of the the more basic ground here. Let, let's talk. Tell the audience just a little bit about um, ab about this basic economy. So um, the NFT the, the NFT game, let's call it uh, system. This is basically based on what is called yield farming. Um, and so my audience, some people will be familiar with how this works. Some won't. Could you? Could you give us a kind of uh, basic rundown on like the the basic underlying economics of um, these games that we're talking about? Sure. So um, with Axie specifically, there's a there's a kind of yield farming going on in that when you play the game and win a match against another person, you win this token uh, called SLP or Smooth Love Potion, and what gives this SLP value is that you need it as an ingredient to breed two axes to create a new one. So to, to buy axes, like the, the developer, Sky Mavis, doesn't sell them to you. You have to buy the axes from other players. 
And the people who are doing that are called breeders. So they breed new axes by breeding two existing axes to create a new one. And to do that, you need to have SLP as an ingredient. So you either have to play a lot of and win a lot of games and earn SLP, or if you're in a hurry, as most are, you would buy them from other people. Then, so you're buying them from the people who are playing the games and farming SLP. So that is how the kind of in-game economy of Axie works. And that's why the, the players who are coming in and farming SLP are able to sell them because somebody's buying them to breed more Axies. And so the value or the market price of these uh of this slp is that just rising because because interest in the game is rising because more and more people want to play the game so that's what drives up the 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 valuation of slp yeah it's completely market driven so if uh there are a lot of players coming in then more breeders would come in and invest in slp and create their own like axie breeding farms so that they would either create their own scholarships as we call the kind of lending uh, lending pools, or you sell those axes to the players who are coming in. Okay, got it. And so when did you realize, oh, wow, this NFT game is basically uh, an economy, and therefore, because it's an economy, there's an opportunity for new players. Like, you're kind of, Yield Guild Games is kind of like a VC firm within the game <laughs> economy, within this, right, in a way? Is that how you think about it, or is there uh, a better way to think about it? So... The, how we like to talk about it is that we're a combination of Berkshire Hathaway and Uber for the metaverse. And let me unpack that a bit. Um, we, we invest in these assets that produce yield inside these games and virtual worlds. So it may be virtual land, it may be axes, it might be race cars in another game. So we're not built to like flip any of these NFTs. We don't buy and sell them. We like to invest in these assets that have yield. And then in turn, we provide these uh, assets to our community. So like an Uber, like they are driving these assets and then they're earning money from it. Right. But what you're doing, your intervention here is basically to enable new gamers to get started or for current gamers to expand their gameplay, basically. Yeah. Treating them like little little business operators. Absolutely. Uh, your company your company comes in and lends them essentially in-game capital uh, that allows them to expand. Is that right? Well, in-game assets, I would say more specifically. Um, yeah, because it, without what we're doing, a lot of people would be priced out of playing these NFT games and there wouldn't be enough players to kind of build the economy, right? In any economy, you need the people who are providing capital, you need the assets, and you need the labor who are coming in. And we're basically making it easy for labor coming into the metaverse because we're the ones that are investing in the assets and lending them to our players so that they don't need to have startup capital to buy a spaceship an Axie team, a piece of land. And later on, as they earn enough of this income, then they will be able to uh, buy some of these assets for themselves. Okay, right. So this is just absolutely fascinating and, and bizarre and, and exciting. So maybe could you give my audience a sense of, since you're from the Philippines and you know you basically built your company uh, you know, from the ground up in this world where this kind of gameplay is uh, an, an increasingly attractive and serious opportunity for, for people. You know, um, how big is this really in the Philippines? Give us a sense of, um, are these headlines people might be hearing about? Is it, how much of that is hype? How big is it really? Um, what, what can you say to help people understand uh, the real scale of, of this kind of serious 
gaming as a job? Sure. So um, there are o- there's over 1 million daily active users in Axie Infinity right now. And we're projecting that maybe 40 to 50% of that DAU is actually in the Philippines. That means there's now hundreds of thousands of people who are uh, using Axie Infinity as either an income supplement or complete job replacement, especially as COVID hit. Like Philippines has been hit real hard. Like a lot of the business is in retail and tourism, which are both massively down. So we're going from people who are locked down, who are playing this game. There are even companies who had to lay off their employees, but before they lay them off, they actually invested in axes and then lent them out to their, uh, their employees so that when they're laid off, they have some income um, for themselves. To, to guilds like Yield Guild who are doing this like in, and actually not just the Philippines, but we're also um, in Thailand, we're in Indonesia, we're big in Latin America as well, like Venezuela or Brazil. So yeah, there, there's now millions of people who are using the metaverse and doing like play to earn as a way to earn an income. Okay, fascinating. And maybe you could say a few words about, you know, how much are people making? Um, how how often are people playing? Like how many hours a day is the, the typical like full-time Axie Infinity player uh, playing? Any, anything else you can say about that? It's actually not a lot of time. People are playing probably somewhere around like four hours a day. And they're earning maybe on average somewhere between like $500 to $1,000 a month. Now, for context, the minimum wage in the Philippines is like $200. It's even smaller in some place like Venezuela. Um, so the I guess the real innovation here is that the game or the metaverse plays a flat wage according to like what the economics are of the of the underlying game economy that is on the blockchain, and it doesn't care whether you're in India or Philippines or United States. Like if you find that like the the earnings in this game is good enough for you. Like the game doesn't adjust, right? So people who come from places with like more limited income opportunities find this as a lifeline and a really good option for them. Okay, fascinating. Yeah, and I think you told me that remittances from Axie Infinity to the Philippines is actually larger than the remittances from Hong Kong to the Philippines. And yeah, Hong that's Kong right. A, and a popular place for, for <laughs> Filipinos, right? Yeah. So if you if you think of Axie as like a digital nation, as it likes to call itself, it's now a top 10 remittance partner of the Philippines, higher than like a Singapore or Hong Kong. And it has a, it actually has a pretty decent chance of moving the country's GDP up by a bit, which is crazy. It's crazy. It's a video game, but it's changing a lot of people's lives and it's actually pumping money into the economy. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's so exciting and so cool. Now, when when did you realize, okay, this idea of mine, Yield Guild Games, is really taking off. I need more capital. I need to raise capital. I need to talk to Americans, VC <laughs> funds. T- tell, tell us tell us like how that came about, how you first kind of realized you were going to need to expand. And then tell us about like what was the pitch that you brought to American VC funds? Like how, how did that go down and, and – um, what what did they make of it? Uh, just tell us that story a little bit. Sure. So before this blew up, I was actually actively participating in yield farming and uh, like posting about NFTs on Twitter. Like I was very early into the NFT scene. And when this started happening in the Philippines, like the insight was 
um, people were doing this manually and they were serving maybe dozens or even at the high end hundreds of people. But if you could supply scale in terms of capital, in terms of automation, as in the terms of like the organization that a startup could do um, at speed and scale, then you could serve a lot more people and have a lot more impact around the world. And that's when I started reaching out to crypto funds, actually mostly over Twitter, like our first investors are American investors like Delphi Digital out of New York, Scalar Capital out of Silicon Valley. I actually met these investors over Twitter and then got into a Zoom call with them and pitched the idea. And this was something that probably would not have been possible pre-COVID. Like most of the Silicon Valley investors, for example, like didn't want to invest in companies and opportunities outside of America. But this being crypto, being more global, and with everyone being locked at home, suddenly a startup from the Philippines had an opportunity to kind of slide into the into the Zoom calendar session of like top VCs in the world. And honestly, I don't think that we would have been able to make this well, like without that unique situation that COVID uh, brought upon us. Right. In a way, because COVID pushed so much energy um, from the Philippines into serious gaming for money, that gave you this kind of unique uh, story to tell, right? And this gave it this kind of unique salience, I guess. Is that right? Not only that, it also gave the opportunity for... Um, founders from all over the world to kind of slide into the schedules of the top investors around the world where maybe they weren't looking at a lot of these international opportunities um, in years prior. Oh, I see. Because it kind of flattened the playing field in a way since everyone's on Zoom. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Someone, Right. An upstart like you from the Philippines can kind of uh, sit on the calendar. Exactly. Right right next to maybe more local big wigs uh, in, in a way that's kind of democratizing. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. So, okay, great. So tell me a little bit more about, you know, where you see all this going, because uh, you're clearly kind of at the forefront of, of something massive. It seems clear gaming is already huge. It's been huge, and, and it looks like it's only increasing. Now gaming is intersecting with this new world of NFTs. Um, what do you, Where do you think it's going? Because I remember, like, back when I was a kid, I used to play games like, you know, mm-hmm. Diablo or something like I that. I played and a lot of Diablo Even myself. back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even back, even back then, it was not unheard of to buy and sell things on eBay. Like, For sure. I never got... I never got too obsessed with it, but I had a good buddy who was pretty obsessed with it, and he was making money buying and selling things on eBay, Diablo items on eBay, which yeah. is pretty hilarious. So I guess part of the process that we're observing here is that NFTs and kind of the, the, the crypto economy, DeFi, whatever we want to call it, is basically just making that longstanding uh, uh, system or that, that longstanding possibility. Now it's just becoming way more liquid, way lower friction, way more, way more what? I mean, what is the underlying dimension that is like really being revolutionized now? How do you see it? Uh, How do you think that through? So yeah, so play to earn has existed for a while, but it had always been like gray market at best. Um, In previous games, even in Diablo or World of Warcraft or RuneScape, the game had always owned the items. It was in the terms of service. You never owned the items, and they had the right to take away your items at any time. These were database items that could be deleted at any moment. And if if the developers did that, for example, if they thought you were breaking your rule, um, like you had no recourse, right? And what happened with NFTs is that now there is this like public global uh, database that is your like immutable source of truth. So if 
if an item is on the database and on the blockchain and it's in my wallet, no one can dispute the fact that I own it and I have the right to sell it to someone else. And yeah, that's that's a huge part of kind of legitimizing play to earn because now if I get issued an asset, it means that no one can take away from it, uh, take it away from me. No one can delete it. And now, like I know that I own it and I have the right to either use it or sell it or lend it to someone at any time. So this has, I guess, allowed play to earn to scale because now you can invest maybe hundreds of thousands even millions of dollars into these game assets knowing that you really own them and can use them okay so it's partially security and the the more direct control over in-game resources by the players gives people much more incentive to actually treat this as a serious economic game whereas my buddy who was like you know uh selling things on ebay from diablo it that's like a much less certain uh, relationship to the ob- to the objects. Yeah, yeah, because it's gray market because it's it's against the terms of service actually, right? Right. Okay. Okay. Fascinating. And so for Yield Guild Games, are you all in on Axie Infinity? Or are you looking at other games? Do you plan? Do you imagine yourself expanding to all of the big games, whatever they might be, or what? So while most of the income now from the guild is uh, coming from Axie, we've actually invested into twelve games. So for example, we have race cars in rev racing and formula one delta time we have virtual land in league of kingdoms and sandbox um we have horses in zed run Uh, so we have a bunch of assets in different games some of them already out some of them not coming out in the next like until the next maybe six months to a couple of years so the idea is we want to give players the freedom to express themselves in the metaverse with whatever type of game or whatever role they want to play right so um, i may be a player in axie i might be a breeder i might be a content creator in this other game i i might be a horse racer and this allows people to kind of choose how they want to express themselves and how they want to earn um, their income and over time like the, the the choices that you have just expands and now you have kind of a, a huge plethora of options in which you you want to earn money from in the metaverse okay right right now the way that you built yield guild games to kind of sit in the metaverse as this as this kind of funding body for players what other types of roles or opportunities in the metaverse do you think are most exciting that maybe haven't been filled yet? So, I mean, I guess you could just make the argument that pretty much everything that exists in the Web2 normie economy is going to find some uh, equivalent in, in Web3. Uh, but are there particular opportunities in the metaverse right now where you're, you're looking at it and you're thinking to yourself like, oh man, someone needs to build the X of the metaverse. You know, what is that X? So I think... As, uh, as the games get more built out, we're going to see a lot more roles that are more like uh, maybe coordination or creator economy type roles. I may be, for example, I may be a guild raid leader or a guide inside a particular game. I may be um, creating art that I'm selling in this particular world. Like I may be a storyteller of lore that's happening in an RPG. That's what really excites me is that when you go beyond just 
being a player in a game or a virtual world. Maybe I'm creating um, costumes or armor. Maybe I'm a virtual blacksmith, for example, or I'm creating the gameplay that um, people in these worlds are are populating. Like once we go into kind of those types of creative jobs, that's the part that excites me the most. Okay, right. So your mental model, all this gaming stuff just basically becomes a full on alternative economy where basically like you can be a blacksmith in the real world. You, you soon you're going to be a full-time blacksmith in the metaverse. Yeah. And is that kind of your model that basically all of the metaverse is going to expand to pretty much completely replicate uh, uh, the, 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 the normal IRL physical economy, but in the metaverse, is well, that basically it? I wouldn't say replicate. I think it really expands the kind of jobs that are available and it allows for a lot more, I would say like creativity and choice on what you would want to do. Because not only are you kind of not bound by the physical limits in the real world, you will also have, I would say dozens, if not hundreds of opportunities open to you at the same time. Whereas you might be more limited to local opportunities if you're looking for local jobs. Right, sure, okay. And more broadly, what kinds of other things are you interested in? What kinds of projects are you bullish on? What do you think is maybe overhyped. I think you told me uh, you own land in Decentraland. Um, maybe maybe you could tell us why you're bullish on that or any other cool things going on that you think are particularly exciting or noteworthy other projects. So along the way in discovering NFTs, I became an NFT art collector. So I first didn't believe in crypto art because I was coming from games and I thought NFTs needed to have utility. But art, like you slap a JPEG on top of an NFT, like at first that wasn't exciting to me, but I started collecting and actually got addicted to it. And the best part of it was that there was actually a way for artists to enforce scarcity on their artwork, sell it digitally and create a direct relationship with myself as an art collector so i didn't see myself as someone who was buying pretty pictures on the internet i actually saw myself more like an angel investor of these artists that i was helping to promote their careers by buying their artwork and yeah before that this wasn't possible like you would commission an artist to do something yourself but for them creating something that they really wanted to do in their art style and have um, collectors come in and buy it um, for what they thought it was worth that was actually really interesting as well so i started collecting crypto art and i bought some land in decentraland and together with a friend of mine we put up um, an art gallery called nara gallery and that's where we put our art collection that's in decentraland that's right what about like crypto voxels is that interesting to you is it, crypto voxels is also interesting but i guess like we decided to just focus on on decentraland is there a reason for that or just kind of trying to think through like how you how you value things and, and what kinds of heuristics you use to think, sure. oh, this is valuable. I'm going to. Yeah. So um, I've land in Sandbox and I like Sandbox because it's more like a Roblox type, like there's going to be gameplay on top of it. I like Decentraland more for like as a gathering place, like there's not a lot of, I would say, like high fidelity gameplay going on, but it's great for meetups. It's great for like static um displays like art and it does like higher fidelity art like other than like crypto voxels which has kind of more i would say like blocky art style it is it is pretty cool though and i see that there's a lot more different kind of virtual world plays um, that are coming out so yeah it's just really fascinating to see the experimentation that's coming coming out right now yeah totally and you alluded before to seeing your collect 
accepting of art as kind of investing in artists. I was also kind of curious to know, like how you evaluate crypto artists, you know, the ones that the ones where you're like, oh, I would like to invest in this artist versus, you know, I'm going to pass I'm going to pass on that one. Uh, how do you think about that? What What are you looking for? What are you trying to stay away from? And just kind of what mental mo- what mental models do you use to evaluate crypto art? So I come from a game development background, so I'm exposed to a lot of art, but art in I would say like a production capacity as opposed to a fine art capacity. So I wasn't viewing it as like, for example, a traditional art collector would um, when looking at a physical art gallery. Like I wasn't too exposed to that. Um, What I was really interested in is, of course, I had to like the art in the first place, but who's the artist behind it? What's their story? How are they promoting themselves? So it's it's almost like evaluating a a startup of one person um, that would like, you know, would they create good art? How consistent are they? How are they with kind of uh, broadcasting their story, telling the story around the artwork? And if there's something that really resonated with me, um, I would buy a piece and then usually like contact the artist and build a relationship. And I've actually made some really good friendships uh, all across the world, like not only in the Philippines where I've supported a number of artists, but also in countries like Brazil and South Africa. And yeah, I've met some truly wonderful people in collecting artwork. Wow. Okay. Fascinating. So I'm interested in how you said that you're you're kind of looking to see their ability to tell a story, their ability, I guess, to to kind of build out on the work that they're doing. And that makes sense, right? Because that's a kind of uh, intangible that is going to have a huge effect on whether or not their work spreads out into the world. So you're looking for those kinds of, you know, social um, social skills, those that kind of trajectory of, of building a larger presence and uh, spread and spreading their work more widely. Yeah. So for better or for worse, they're like there's no limit of like good artists, right? That are out on the internet. And uh, a lot of them are making their way into minting NFTs. So there is going to be a lot of competition if you're just competing on like your style of artwork and the quality of artwork. So it has to be like, why would a person emotionally connect with this? Either with the artwork, what's the story behind it? What's the story of the artist behind it? What are they trying to achieve? I think those are the things that set apart like the best artists, either like in real life or in the in the digital in the NFT space. Okay, fascinating. That that's that's really interesting to hear how someone like you evaluates that. And it's interesting also because it's it it almost sounds very similar to the gaming dimension. Like how you evaluate artists is kind of informed by your experience with with games it seems because really to be a successful artist in crypto the 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 ones that thrive the most uh the artists whose artworks appreciate and value the most over time are going to be kind of playing the internet and playing playing the great web three the great online game (laughs) exactly playing web three kind of kind of like a game kind of like a game so it's like even for artists who don't know anything about gaming and have never played a video game in their life in a way to navigate the the web three spaces that are opening up, you kind of are playing a video game. You're playing like a social video game where your art is kind of like an in-game resource that um, you're, you have to tell the story around why it's valuable and, and, and create kind of sequences of, of, of community interactions that um, drive meaning and, and, and emotional and psychological significance around that artwork. 
uh, to see to see the numbers go up over time, really, and that that's kind <laughs> of like winning the winning the winning the game in a way, right? Yeah. So yeah, funny you say that because the way I see Web three, the mental model for that is that I think that Web three enables us to turn life into a video game, gives us resources that we can track of. Um, like keep score in like different types of tokens, whether they are fungible or non-fungible. Um, there's a way of keeping score via ETH if you make your sales but w- and like the, the assets, the NFTs that you collect in your wallet. And I myself am a guild leader, which is like a guild leader in a wor- world of Warcraft, but I'm directing people in real life who are playing games in the virtual world that are getting virtual points that are converting, getting converted to real money which is affecting people at a large scale in the world. So honestly, Web3 has actually spoiled playing games for me because now I'm playing a giant video game with huge real-world consequences, raising real money for it, being able to affect lives in dozens of countries around the world. It's It just doesn't compare to just playing a video game for points, right? Right, right. But it is kind of like <laughs> a video game onto itself, right? It is. That's it is. absolutely <laughs> fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, great. And how are you evaluating as, since you're an art collector, how do you evaluate the current NFT hype? Uh, obviously, there's a bunch of high profile NFT projects. Everyone's talking about CryptoPunks and Bored Apes and, and, and this and that. Um, how are you evaluating this? Are, do you just, are, are you buying into these things or do you think there's a bit of a bubble going on? Uh, how are you thinking about it? Um, so it, it it's kind of crazy how fast um, NFTs, I think, have proliferated. Um, definitely did not expect them to go at the pace. So there's two things about that. One is that um, it's actually gaining, uh, I guess, mass market traction faster than, I guess, the decentralized finance is because NFTs are, I would say, a lot more relatable. Um, it's easier for people to collect maybe a card in NBA Top Shot or a piece of artwork or a profile picture. There's some emotional resonance to it that is different from maybe options trading or like doing loans. Um, at the same time, though, because there is a lot of hype on it, a lot of money is being piled on it, and this actually makes the assets well out of reach, out of ordinary people around the world, and I think that's a problem. And of course, we like it when the price of Ethereum goes up, for example, but when gas costs like 0.1 ETH, it's already $300 to mint an NFT that goes into your wallet. That puts it out of reach of uh, yeah, basically people who want to go in and just get started on Ethereum, maybe collect their first um, collectible profile picture or um, or get their first game item. And when CryptoPunks are regularly selling for hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, it gives a negative impression that like doing NFTs is for rich people only. So of course, um, while kind of the attention you're getting NFTs is good, I think. We have to balance it and always think about the accessibility on the other side as well. Right. And I guess maybe gaming is kind of an example of that, right? Like it's it's probably, is it fairly easy to get onto Axie Infinity? I mean, to be fair, I've never, I've never really tried to get on there. I never really played it. Maybe that's actually something interesting to talk about for a moment. Is it like um, someone listening to this right now, and maybe there's someone listening who's maybe unemployed or they're just kind of bored with their current job. They have time to burn and they're like listening to you say that you can make you know, $1,000 a month on Axie Infinity playing four hours a day. Um, is it really as simple as like anyone can basically go on to Axie Infinity, start, play- start playing, learn how it works? And is this like really openly available to anyone right now or are there uh, roadblocks? The fascinating thing about a game like Axie is that 
it's both open, but the onboarding is still a big hurdle. So for example, Axie is getting incredible traction right now. There were weeks where it was going like double digit growth, percentage growth in um, every week. Now there's over 1 million daily active users. In spite of the hurdles being, you had to download a game that was neither on the on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. You don't have to download one, but you actually have to download two wallets to play, like a MetaMask wallet and Axie's Ronin wallet. And then when you fire up the game, um, the game experience is on a mobile application. The market the marketplace experience is on a separate website because the app stores won't allow you uh, to have the, the kind of trading on the game itself. So there's actually a lot of hurdles on the UX side. Despite that, the kind of zero to one moment that Axie did was so profound that it's still getting massive user traction. And I don't think any game company would have expected Axie with all of the UX hurdles to have the kind of growth that they did because the benefit that they offered, hey, you can actually play this game and earn two to three times what your salary was in, in some of these countries. It was so massive that people were able to go through those hurdles. And things like guilds actually also massively help in kind of easing those onboarding hurdles. So for example, if you're uh, onboarding to Axie Infinity via a guild, you don't have to download those wallets to start with. You get an Axie team from, uh, from the guild, you start playing, and you're with a community that's helping you play the game. And only like a couple of weeks in, do you figure out how crypto works when you start earning money? And I think it's really important because if you're doing play to earn, you're asking people for uh, to play a game, which is a skill that a lot of them have, and then learn crypto along the way. Whereas if you start them to uh, to learn crypto, then it's a lot higher hurdle, right? Mm -hmm. For sure. So how hard is it for a newcomer to the game to get resources from Yield Guild? Um, like what you call scholarships, where, where you give the resources to people to to play better, um, is that super competitive? Tell us about tell us a little bit about that. So the onboarding process is easy in that you go to our Discord, you talk to one of the scholarship managers, and then they kind of sign you on, and then you can almost start playing. The hurdle is that there's a lot more people who want to play than there are assets available. So for every slot that we have, there's probably like 100 people on the waiting list. Right. And so are you evaluating players kind of like uh, assets in a way? Like, are you, are, you, are you evaluating how good this person is likely to be as a player? So um, they do apply. So we have 19 community managers that handle the players directly. And they, uh, they're the ones that kind of onboard these players from their local communities. Um, and yeah, a lot of this via referral system, people have application. And I think more than anything else, um, the managers look for consistency and the willingness to learn. If you don't, if you're not consistent in playing, they'll, they'll kick you out and then they'll invite someone else who would be more consistent in playing. But above all, you have to be willing to learn the game and get better over time. So you don't have to be like a top-notch player to start with but you have to have that willingness to learn how to play the game and get better. Okay, interesting. Now, performance in, in many kind of competitive human affairs are, it's often on a power law. So I suspect you have gamers who are way, way better than almost all the rest. Is that right? Yeah. You, tell, tell us a little bit about that. About that. Like, do, are, do you have superstars in Axie Infinity who play for you, uh, play, kind of play for your team? And 
what are they like? Are they playing 24 hours? How much are they making? Tell <laughs> us about the, 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 the outliers. Okay, so the outliers aren't um, doing a lot more from a time perspective, but they can earn orders of magnitude more because they become players on the esports or competitive level, right? So if you're game farming at the bottom rung, at the top rung, you're a competitive esports player, you're competing in tournaments, you're getting tournament prizes, and you have a higher win rate, so you're earning more SLP. So you could be earning maybe tens of thousands of dollars a month if you're a really good player. Tens of thousands a month if you're a really good player. And what distinguishes those players? Like, is it faster reaction time? Is it intelligence? Like, what are the traits that determine those outlier players? So it, it's not reaction time. It's in... I guess it's like if you're playing Magic the Gathering or Hearthstone, it's having a situational awareness of like how the game is going and how your players might, or how your opponent might react in the next few turns and how you want to play the cards that you have um, uh, during that time. So it's really a kind of intelligence in terms of situational awareness and knowing what, uh, what cards to play. So are these best game the, the best gamers in Axie Infinity, are they also like becoming influencers? Are they like famous uh, across the world of Axie? Do they um, do they have a kind of like social, um, you know, kind of influence or power uh, throughout the, the world of the game? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There is a massive content creator network on Axie Infinity. Some of them are top players. Some of them are good at tutorials. Some of them are just great at kind of engaging their community. Some of these top players are live streamers or vice versa. And there's just so much energy on, uh, on yeah, on the kind of content creator network on top of Axie. It's now in the top 50, like most stream games on Twitch right now, actually. Um, and yeah, like if you go on Twitter, there's just so much activity and so much energy, positive energy on the kind of on the influencer and content creator side. You mentioned that recently Axie Infinity had a kind of zero to one moment where this just kind of took off like crazy. I, I just checked now the Axie Infinity, uh, the, a the AXS token has a market cap of like 3.8 billion. So it's, it's insane. Do you have um, a hypothesis? Like what happened there exactly? Do you know, do you have a hypothesis about what a, what about the Axie system or the that moment um, made this kind of blow up all of a sudden? I know exactly what happened. So what happened in May was that Axie released its Ronin sidechain. Um, it was on Ethereum um, in the five months prior to that, which uh, was great, but Ethereum was also very expensive, which limited the amount of transactions that people would do. So when it released the Ronin sidechain, the transactions were suddenly free and usage just really took off. And Axie went from 15,000 daily active users in January to in May is probably like um, like 250,000. And in July, it was like over a million. Wow, okay. So was that, that was the first uh, NFT game that engineered its own sidechain? Um, I'm not sure if it was the first, but it was the one that first got like really massive traction. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So tell me a little bit about what you learned from Neil Stevenson. How did how did how did Neil Stevenson inform your larger mental models of, of the metaverse and and what you're building? It's really funny because um, like the just the concept of the metaverse um, is I would say over twenty years old um, at this point, and a lot of the a lot of the theories that Stevenson laid out um, at that time in Snow Crash are actually still true today like there were kind of different groups that are competing with each other people from going from 
real life into having their own kind of property in the metaverse like how the role that geeks would play and like what dif different factions would do it's just amazing how so much of reading snow crash holds up 20 plus years later absolutely did you take something from neil stevenson in particular when it comes to how you've engineered yield guild games and and you know um the kinds of strategic wagers that that you're making on the future i guess not in a very specific sense but the concept of a kind of gaming guild that organizes people in the virtual world towards common ends is yeah is very out of snow crash and actually one of my first investors linda shea when i pitched her the concept for yield guild she was like wow this is something out of snow crash <laughs> it's it's a really influential book in in our parts of the of the web for sure Okay, that's fascinating. So maybe we'll we'll end by just talking a little bit about what's next and specifically around, you know, what is the big hurdle for a company such as yours? Like in, in the metaverse right now, what are what are the bottlenecks that when they're unlocked, that's going to be like the next level of 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 world history? Like wh where are things where are things uh kind of broken at the moment or 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 blocked up and what kinds of innovations are coming down the pike that you're really waiting for to unlock the next level of all of this sure so everyone would probably talk about like technical roadblocks at this point and i think those are kind of obvious i'll actually pull back and talk about the cultural roadblocks because i think these are more interesting i think growing up there's always been this notion that playing games have been a waste of time. Your parents might have yelled at you for playing too much games. Why don't you go study instead? And there's always this notion that playing games have been unproductive and bad for you. And they're addictive, right? But what you're actually doing is that you're learning mastery. And sometimes it might be something simple. Sometimes it might be something complex. If you're playing an MMO, you're actually learning things like group coordination. And now for the first moment in time, we are learning that those skills are actually valuable and monetizable at the same time. So these skills that my mom had always yelled me at because I was wasting time playing games, now I can actually make a whole living out of playing these games and that is kind of mind-blowing and i think a lot of people are still having a hard time accepting that playing games for income is quote-unquote real work right so we see a lot of that cultural resistance and i think a lot of this has to fade away people have to realize and really understand that earning an income inside a virtual world is no different from earning an income typing on your computer like producing a bunch of words or code that produces something that gives you money right like it's actually the same thing right it's actually better it's actually better because basically if you're if you're pursuing some kind of normal career in some kind of like bureaucratic institution you're you're really still just playing an arbitrary video game you're yeah, like yeah moving, exactly you know, moving, it, 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 you know, it is moving. still a video game <laughs> it's a video game it's just a shitty video game yeah, right yeah, like yeah. you're playing you're playing this video game of like old boomer people yeah. like pushing their buttons in the right way it's like to advance in your career in a bureaucratic institution you basically have to move around pixels on a on a screen yeah. and you have to kind of do it in competition with other humans who are trying to push the buttons of other human people of other humans and the game is just trying to basically increase your salary <laughs> and increase your stat increase your status within that institution but that that is essentially it's no more 
uh, real yeah. or uh, value, valuable than a digital uh, content. We're all it's living no in a simulation. <laughs> well, in both cases, in both cases, like in institutional careers, you're you're trying to play these little mini games to advance your income and your and your status within that world, and increasing your status within a career world has some kind of economic uh, fungibility, right? Like if you're a, a professor, right? And you're like doing really well as a professor, you have this kind of like cultural capital within a particular world. And that cultural capital within that world is kind of like an in-game token because it has some kind of exchange rate with, um, you know, USD, but it's not exactly USD. It's not itself necessarily valuable. It's a, it's a kind of proxy for value that's really only valuable within a very particular institutional economy. And then you can, you can trade it outside of that economy. So really like a lot of bureaucratic normal uh, careers, they, they really are kind of strictly speaking video games. They're very limited they're old, video games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're just old clunky, very limited video games that are often very oppressive and, and, and kind of boring uh, and slow most importantly. And so I think that's something that's really interesting about the the metaverse and gaming is that it's not really a new or a different thing. It's just a formalization of what everyone is always doing in their different uh, kind of uh, social domains, basically. Every social domain where people care about something is like a little micro economy. It's a little it's a little game. It's a little game world. And um, value within that world has some kind of exchangeability with value outside of that world. But that those exchange rates are always fluctuating. And um, so I, I really like that uh, kind of analytical uh, power that that the metaverse has for decoding like the other things uh, happening in the world, even even before, you know, the metaverse revolution. So it's absolutely fascinating. And what kinds of risks are you facing? Like, um, you know, because we're talking about huge sums of money, right? As you were saying, as you were saying, if you think of Axie Infinity as a country, um, it's um, it in, in a country such as the Philippines, uh, Axie Infinity is, is one of the biggest trading partners basically in a way. So this is like already serious, serious political weight going, uh, going on here, uh, at least for some countries on, at certain margins. So how does that pan out? I mean, does the Philippines, does the government in the Philippines, um, feel threatened by this? Is there some chance that the, 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 the government in the Philippines is just like, this is way too powerful, too quick. We have to crush this. Um, how do you think about, you must be thinking very carefully about the, the, the politics involved and the political risks. Like what's, how do you think about that? And what's most important there? It's a very, at scale, it is really a geopolitical game of disruption where you have a very efficient economy using the labor that are in these countries that aren't earning a lot. So it's putting a lot of money in, in these countries and a lot of these economies. And we're actually seeing the government already take notice in the Philippines where, you know, there are various departments like the SEC, the local version of the IRS, trying to figure out what is this thing or how do we regulate it? How do we tax it? Are people being scammed? Is this legit? So we're very actively working with communications, um, with talking with stakeholders, talking with congressmen, on making people understand that this is a legitimate form of work. It is actually like 
a new version of gig work where, uh, yeah, instead of working with the physical world, you are doing gig work in the virtual world. And we're trying to define it in a way that these governments understand so that there's no like unnecessarily uh, regulation. It may fall under maybe existing rules towards like how freelancers or how gig work is, uh, is defined. Do you think there's any chance that a country like the Philippines would maybe lean into this and just decide to become like the specialist Axie Infinity country, right? Like, I guess a forward thinking, like a forward thinking, uh, you know, politician in, in Philippines could say, look, we're going to specialize in this. We're going to provide all this like subsidized uh, training. We're going to make the, the, you know, the, the people of the Philippines, the best gamers in the world. And we're going to get rich through basically being uh, some of the best metaverse players in the world is there is that like conceivable do you think or yeah yeah i see it happening already because filipinos have always been like great gamers um yeah and they've always been very social like if you like if you go through the history of just games and social networks filipinos have always been very active except that they've been kind of this invisible undercurrent of population because they've not been right easily monetizable via advertising in web too but now their voices are heard people are actually getting rich playing these games and now we're actually seeing a lot of gaming communities prop up where they had never been empowered with money before and now that they're able to earn a living like these communities are getting real uh, stronger like by the day so i do expect philippines to be one of the strongest hubs of play to earn and also there's not this i would say unlike for example in a country like india where there's a lot of social pressure towards probably being an engineer for example like there's it's not as much pressure in the philippines and there's just a lot of gamers out there um yeah, so yeah, I do expect this to get really stronger um, in the Philippines and to the point where it, it might be employing millions or tens of millions. That's pretty fascinating. Do you think there's a reason why there's such a preponderance of gamers in the Philippines relative to other countries um, compared to it? Not exactly sure, but it's always been there. And I guess added to the fact that Filipinos had always been like very fluent in English and like Western culture, such that the latest games from from the U.S., for example, would always makes it makes it make its way easily in um, into the Philippines. So I think that kind of Western language and affinity um, also helps a lot. Okay, fascinating, fascinating. Well, I think we covered a ton of ground. I don't know. I don't know that I have too many more questions. I want to say uh, thank you very much for coming on and big congratulations on uh, the recent round of fundraising. It looks like uh, Yield Guilt Games is just a, a phenomenal, rapidly growing and just very interesting uh, project, basically. So it was really cool to look under the hood with you and learn a little bit more about the revolution in gaming, the revolution in the metaverse specifically with respect to how it's changing the lives of so many people in the Philippines. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate your takes. Uh, there was a lot of insight here, you know, ranging from the metaverse to the art world. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank you, Gabby, for your time. And I think that's all I got for now. All right, Justin, thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely, Gabby. Is there anywhere that I should send people in particular for people who want to learn more about Yield Guild Games, maybe people who want to get involved or help, or maybe even there's some investors out there who want to, I guess the round is already closed, but uh, for anyone out there listening, uh, any, any, anywhere you want to send people. Yeah, so go to our uh, Discord community. It's discord.gg slash ygg. Um, on Twitter, it's twitter.com slash yield guild. And yeah, you can find us there. 
Okay, awesome. I'll put links to all of those things in the, in the show notes. Gabby, thank you again. Take care and uh, stay in touch. Keep me posted on everything and let me know if there's ever anything I can do to, to help you. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you an Apple Podcasts. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show and I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening and thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.